your enthusiasm for all that the Lord is doing in your life and in his wonderful people. And I praise God for your, your wise leadership, your great heart for this community, and for all that you pour out in service of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're doing a wonderful job. And if you keep this, if you keep this up, if you keep this up, they might even let you try out the West Side Story. Uh, <laughs> maybe not, maybe not. My great thanks also to uh, to Corky and Rod and the Church Council uh, for all that you give in service of our Lord Jesus Christ and in service of this wonderful church. I bring you greetings from. Our Archbishop, Archbishop Foley Beach of the Anglican Church in North America, and in all of his travels uh, across the country and around the world, he sends his, his warm greetings to you all. Well, let's pray as we, as we turn to the scriptures. <clears throat> Come, Holy Spirit, use and overrule my words and all our thoughts, so that your word alone may be spoken and your word alone heard through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, our gospel reading this morning is the story of Doubting Thomas, which is perhaps the best known of Jesus' resurrection appearances. The story begins on Easter Sunday night with the ten apostles. That's the twelve without Judas, who has hanged himself, and without Thomas, who was absent. The ten apostles and a few other of Jesus' followers are shut up in a house by themselves. They've gone into hiding out of fear that the religious leaders will do to them what they have just done to Jesus. And then in the midst of their disbelief at what Mary Magdalene and Peter and a couple of others had told them about Jesus being alive, Jesus appears and shows them the wounds of his crucifixion. Now we don't know why Thomas was absent. He may have gone on some errand for the group, or he may simply have withdrawn in his grief and desire to be alone. We do know from the account in Luke's gospel that he missed a good sermon, because it says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he helped them see how it all pointed to him as the Messiah. Well, when Thomas returns, he is skeptical about what the other disciples tell him. He says, unless I see the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, that's the wound where the Roman soldier pierced his side with a spear at the end. He says, if unless I do that, I will never believe. Now, Thomas has been criticized through the centuries for wanting that tangible evidence. But he only... But but he only wants what the others experience. I mean, John's Gospel clearly says that when Jesus appeared to the others, he showed them his hands and his side. Thomas really wants the same for himself. And there's no indication that Thomas was a particularly skeptical person as such. He certainly hadn't been skeptical when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead. He really thought it was going to be dangerous, and he said, let's go with him, so we'll die too. So you might say he was a little gloomy, but you wouldn't think there's any indication that he was particularly skeptical. You see, Thomas's doubt was neither wrong nor evil. And we see that from Jesus' response to him. 
A week later, Jesus appears again to the group, but this time when Thomas is there. And Jesus says directly to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and put it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Well, Jesus is clearly saying that more out of compassion than in some rebuke. And contrast that with Jesus' attitude throughout his ministry to the arrogant religious leaders who also didn't believe. He called them blind, hypocrites, snakes, brood of vipers, because they were only looking for evidence to support their rejection of Jesus. And they wanted to destroy the faith of those who, who believed in him. But Jesus never condemned the honest seeker after truth. And Jesus didn't condemn Thomas. He said he gave himself to Thomas. He invited Thomas to put his trust in him. And then Thomas responds, not just with some begrudging of acceptance of what he can't refute, but with true joy and worship. He says, my Lord and my God. And that is, in fact, the highest affirmation that, uh, of any of the 12 in their relationship with Jesus while he was with them. The last has become the first. The greatest doubter has come to the fullest and strongest faith. And that's often the way it is, that those who seem furthest from faith come by God's grace to the deepest devotion. Then Jesus said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus isn't suggesting that we ought to believe without first raising questions. There is no hint in the Gospels that Jesus ever condemned serious inquiry, serious study. Now Jesus is saying this, that we who must believe without being able to see the risen Jesus for ourselves have no cause to envy those disciples who have the opportunity to see him. We're apt to think, if only I had lived then and could see for myself, or if only Jesus would appear to me in that way. But Jesus' point is that while faith may be more difficult for us who haven't seen Jesus with our physical eyes, there's also great blessing for us when we put our trust in him. Blessed are those who have not seen, he says, and yet who have believed. Jesus encourages us to investigate and study and ask all of our questions until we're persuaded that he is real, that he is the truth, that he is alive. We don't believe in Jesus and the truth of Christianity because we mindlessly believe in things that aren't real. We believe in Jesus because we are convinced that the evidence is trustworthy and that Jesus is the truth. Michael Ramson, who works with Rabbi Zacharias bringing the gospel to intellectuals and academics at Oxford and other places, uh, Michael spoke to a group of us here in Northern Virginia, and Michael put it this way. He said, in the world's eyes, to say, I have faith, means, I believe something, but I'm not sure if it's true or real. But I need it to be real, and I want it to be real, so I have faith. In other words, you make that big leap into the dark. And then Michael said with a little smile on his face, 
Strong faith, therefore, would be when you suspect that what you believe isn't true, but you're still able to believe it. That's strong faith. And the strongest possible kind of faith would be when you know something isn't true, and you're still able to believe it. Well, Christians don't believe in Jesus and the truth of Christianity because we mindlessly believe in things that aren't real. We believe in Jesus because, like Thomas, we're convinced that the evidence is trustworthy and Jesus is the truth. <laughs> but when Christians make a claim like Jesus is the truth, we're often told that Christianity is just one way to God and that all religions contain a little of the truth. When our son was in high school, he attended the church-affiliated school in the so-called family life class that dealt with ethics and sexuality. He wrote a paper in which he set forth his convictions, convictions which were shaped by a biblical worldview. His teacher wrote in red pen on his paper, that is your belief, but I hope you understand that no one belief is right. You may have had something similar said to you. Truth is relative. No one religion is really right. Well, if you believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, it's increasingly, increasingly likely that someone will brand you as intolerant, arrogant. It's much better, we're told, to proclaim that all paths lead to God, that all religions are equally true, and to understand that while Christianity may work for you, we must affirm that other faiths, or no faith at all, work just as well for other people. Well, how do we understand this? How do we understand these increasingly sharp critiques of Christianity and Western culture? What do Christians believe about the truth, and how do we respond to the accusation that the Christian view is intolerant, even hateful? Well, let's take a look at some of those questions. First, what about the claim of my son's teacher that no one belief is right? Well, she was making a statement of belief, wasn't she? She was stating her belief and claiming it was right, while in the same sentence saying no belief is right. To say there is no absolute truth is to make what kind of statement? An absolute statement. It is absolutely true at all times and in all places that there is no absolute truth. Well, that won't hold water. But it is asserted so often in our culture that uh, against the Christian view that many are believing that, even in the church. But as Cambridge philosopher Roger Scruton has put it, a writer who says that there are no truths or that all truth is merely relative is asking you not to believe him, so don't. <laughs> well, next, what about the claim that all religions are equally true and basically teach the same thing? Now, at the outset, we need to understand that that claim is contradicted by nearly all of those religions themselves. Buddhists and Jews don't think they believe the same thing. Hindus and Muslims don't say they agree on the essential truths about God. Actually, it's condescending to say that you know better than the Muslims what the Muslims really believe. And it's arrogant to say that you know better than the Buddhists what Buddhists think is essential to their religion. 
And so we need to realize that this claim that all religions are equally true and teach basically the same thing is really to say that the specific conflicting religious doctrines of those various religions aren't really important at all. What really is important, it is argued, is some overarching general belief, usually expressed with the notion that there's a God who is spirit and that this God is loving. The problem, of course, is that that idea that the only belief that matters is that God is spirit and God is loving is what? A religious doctrine. What the supposedly tolerant position boils down to is that all religious doctrines are false except mine. Which, of course, is exactly the sort of supposedly intolerant position that the speaker is hoping to avoid. It's inconsistent to say that doctrine doesn't matter, while at the same time claiming to know and improve the essential religious doctrine of all religions. As soon as you start critiquing religious teaching, you yourself are offering what? A religious teaching. Now that's a perfectly fine thing to do. I'm doing it from this platform right now. But you can't critique other religious doctrines while claiming you have none of your own. And so some offer the seemingly broad and generous view that while Christianity may be true in some sense, so are other religions as well. Jesus is therefore simply one doorway to God. All religions, it is argued, are equally true or equally false. And one of the points that's most often made is that believers in the various religions are like the seven blind men and the elephant. You may be familiar with the story of the seven blind men in India who come across an elephant. And the elephant allows them to touch it and learn about it. But each blind man touches a different part of the elephant and because of his experience of the elephant is so limited, he draws false conclusions of what an elephant is like. The blind man who touches the elephant's tusk thinks an elephant is like a spear. The blind man who touches the tail thinks no, an elephant is like a rope. And the one who touches his side thinks an elephant is like a wall, and so on. But the story also includes a wise and knowing figure, the Raja. And the Raja can see. And because he can see, he understands the elephant for what it is. And he is able to correct the partial knowing of the blind man. Now this story is told in Buddhism, Hinduism, and other Eastern religions. It was made famous in the West by the 19th century poem by John Godfrey Sachs called The Parable of the Blind Man and the Elephant. And part of it goes like this. It was six men of Hindustan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each, by observation, might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling the tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp to me, tis very clear this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. And so the poem goes on like that, verse after verse, until this final stanza. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong. 
Though each was partly in the right, they all were in the wrong. Well, to say this story is widely invoked in debates about truth is an understatement. Google blind man, blind men and elephant, and you get 20 million hits. The US government uses it to train Peace Corps volunteers so that they don't think they have any superior knowledge to convey. But let's look at the points that are being made because it is those beliefs that are increasingly um, widespread in our culture as we seek to share Jesus and the truth of the Bible. First, the story says we are all groping for the truth about God like blind men. All religions may be seeking God, but all seekers are really blind to the real nature of God. The argument implicit in the story goes like this. No one really knows the truth. No one religion is right. We may all know a little bit. All religions have some of the truth about God, but not all. But what we think we know is so partial as to be wrong. All religions are also wrong, even mostly wrong. But if you put together all the little bits we know, we would get a truer picture of reality and of God. You Christians, though, think you know the truth and that you alone are right. But you are so arrogant. You're like one of the blind men. You really don't know much at all. But the story underneath it is actually being used in an intellectually dishonest way. Let me explain. First, in the story, who knows the truth? Who alone is not blind? It's the Raja, of course. Only the Raja can see and know the truth. If someone were to tell you the story, who in this story is that person claiming to be? Well, obviously the Raja, the, the only seeing person. The person recounting the story is claiming to be the one person on the planet who can really see and know the truth, unlike all the believers of all the religions in all the world. Now who's being arrogant? Second, there's an assumption in the story that the elephant is passive and cannot speak. But God does speak, and God does show us himself. He's active in our lives. Christians don't claim that we learn about God by groping in the dark. God is not silent, leaving us simply to guess about his nature. God has revealed himself, and so we know the truth about God. He's revealed himself in scripture, and he's revealed himself supremely in becoming human in Jesus Christ, precisely so that we will know what he's like. And third, the story suggests also that the various religions reject other religions because they've not experienced what the believers of those other religions have experienced. Meaning the one who touches the trunk believes what he does because he hasn't touched the leg, and so on. But Christians don't, for example, reject the belief in reincarnation of Buddhism and Hinduism because we're uninformed, or because we haven't experienced what Buddhists and Hindus have. Christians believe what we do because God has revealed the truth. We've investigated it, and we're persuaded that it's true. So next time somebody tells you nobody knows whose religion is right, thinking your right is arrogant, don't be intimidated. Suppose this week a scientist at NIH announces the discovery of a cure for, say, arthritis. 
Is that arrogant? No, the question is whether it's true or not. Now, it can be said arrogantly, look at me, I'm the greatest scientist that ever lived. I cured arthritis. But it isn't arrogant to report that you cured arthritis if it's true. Knowing the truth about Jesus isn't arrogant. Jesus has rescued us, forgiven us, saved us. It is no credit to us. The Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We speak humbly about ourselves, but we speak confidently of the truth of Jesus and what he's done for us. We know the truth because God has revealed it to us. We didn't figure it out. We didn't just decide what feels right to us. We know the truth because God has revealed it to us in his word written in the Bible and supremely in his word, in the word made flesh in Jesus. Now in deciding about what God says is true, in putting our trust in Jesus Christ, we have yielded to his authority. We have submitted to God's truth. God and God alone decides what's true. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, choosing him for who he really is, we are choosing the Christian faith for what it really is. We don't get to pick and choose beliefs according to our personal whim and experience, or our, our own preferences even. The popular religious website, beliefnet.com, has a fascinating section on its website that I find particularly revealing of the mindset of our culture. It's called Belief-O-Matic, and it makes this promise. Even if you don't know what faith you are, Belief-O-Matic knows. Answer 20 questions about your concept of God, the afterlife, human nature, and more, and Belief-O-Matic will tell you what religion, if any, you practice or ought to consider practicing. In other words, you say what you already believe, and Belief-O-Matic will help you find a religion that conforms to your beliefs. Perhaps only partially tongue-in-cheek, the website offers this disclaimer. Warning! Belief-O-Matic assumes no legal liability for the ultimate fate of your soul. <laughs> but here's the problem. Christianity is not merely going along some spiritual cafeteria line picking out the beliefs that we find appealing. Hmm, Terry Dutray, I'd like a large helping of that forgiveness, please. But no, 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 no repentance today, thanks. Let's see, I'll have a tiny little bit of that sacrifice there. Oh, and that reincarnation, I have a friend who likes that. I'll try some of that. And yes, a little Jesus, please, but only the warm and gooey parts. I mean, you get the idea. But it's that approach to faith that is precisely the problem in the American church today. All too often we bring our own notions of truth to our reading of the Bible. We select what conforms to our beliefs and we filter out or explain away whatever offends our sensibilities. But we must live under God and under his word revealed to us in the Bible. We yield to the Bible's authority over our beliefs, our morals, our 
It is the word of God. It's not our own word. It's not really a human word which we can ignore or change to suit our predetermined convictions. Do you see the inconsistency of saying, I accept this belief as true because Jesus teaches it in the Bible, but I reject this other belief even though Jesus also teaches it in the Bible. I accept what the Bible teaches about God being loving, for example, but I reject what the Bible teaches about God's judgment. A Christian can't do that. God gets to decide what's right and what's true. Our job is to read scripture and pray and to seek the counsel of mature Christians in order to understand God's truth. Our job is not to decide what I'm comfortable with. Jesus revealed himself to Thomas and to those first disciples. And he reveals himself to us. He delights in our honest questions and he invites us to trust him and trust the truth that he shows us. He calls us to be confident about the truth and bold in sharing it, even as we are humble about ourselves. I thank God for this wonderful church, a church that loves the word of God, a church that genuinely welcomes everyone who is seeking the truth. And I pray the Lord's richest blessings on you all as you seek that truth of God with all your heart and soul and mind, and as you share that truth with a community that needs him so very much.